tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party. Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is My Kind of Weird, a podcast where two people swap and pitch three kinds of media, something watchable, something readable, and something listenable, to see if at the end of the pod each person says, that's my kind of weird. I'm your host, Anthony Pollock, and joining me today is Blair Witch Project production designer, uh, director and co-writer of Video Palace, which you can find on Shutter, director of 20 Seconds to Live, and director of Alien Raiders, Ben Rock. Hey, how are you doing? Ben, are you ready to get weird with me? I have been ready to get weird with you for weeks. Can't wait. <laughs> ben, present your something watchable. Uh, my something watchable uh, uh, is Pan's Labyrinth. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's, I, I would say Guillermo, my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie uh, in his filmography so far. And he's made many great movies. He won an Oscar for, um, uh, crap. What was it called? Ah, I'm already losing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, uh, he's already lost it, folks. (laughs) (laughs) He, he won an Oscar. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of his first movie, Kronos. And I think it was his second movie, the devil's backbone. Uh, uh, but Pan's Labyrinth, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which is uh, uh, his third Spanish language feature, I believe, and also I don't think he's done another Spanish language feature since this, uh, is, in my opinion, the perfect blend of fantasy, horror, kind of the mythos kind of thing. When I think about what makes a Del Toro movie a Del Toro movie, I feel like the DNA is all in Pan's Labyrinth. And I almost said uh, The Devil's Backbone, because I think The Devil's Backbone is just a masterpiece. But Pan's Labyrinth is uh, gorgeous. It, it's got uh, an amazing collaboration with uh, Doug Jones, who's, who's uh, you know, was, was in, is in basically all of his movies, including the Hellboy movies and everything. Uh, but he's amazing in this, both as the, the fawn, which is sort of, uh, you don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, this creature who visits the, the main character, who's a, a little girl. Um, he's also the pale man, which I think, for my money, is one of the scariest monsters in film history, like maybe in my top five of all okay, time. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, just, just the way that it, it kind of fuses kind of a fairy tale world with uh, the Spanish Civil War. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and how, how dark it's willing to go and still feel sort of like a fantasy movie. Also, I, I, I even, uh, I'm a big fan of practical effects, but I love the way he mixes the practical and the CGI. And, uh, I went back and rewatched it recently and, uh, and I feel like the CGI, 
you know, CGI dates itself very quickly, but I feel like the CGI, like the fairies and stuff in it, they actually hold up pretty well. And uh, it's, it, I mean, to me, wall to wall, a masterpiece, uh, I wouldn't change a frame of the movie. And uh, it's just old enough uh, from 2006 that maybe people haven't seen it who are listening to this. So if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, I, uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. I feel like the the creature who holds up his eyes and in sort of both hands, I feel yeah. like that image is so pop culture synonymous at this point because it's just such an iconic, just that picture mm. with the girl and where they first encounter each other um, for the very first time. I feel that like that's, you know, very synonymous. Um, I also find that this film is very much... It's if you want to know what Guillermo del Toro um, is about stylistically, what his writing chops are like, what his directing chops are like, then this film is, you know, a perfect gateway drug. For sure, for sure. And I mean, the gateway drug for me was his first feature, Kronos, which I just um, I, I I saw it when I was in film school, and it was one of those things where it's like wait, you're allowed to make a movie like that? Like, it was just so unusual <laughs> for what it was. Um, and, and the movie that I blanked out on, by the way, is The Shape of Water, which did win Best Picture. And, yeah, and yeah. It is, is that the one where uh, essentially it's about this woman wanting to fuck a fish? Is that yeah, the yeah, one? No, yeah, yeah, there's, there's fish sex involved. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually, uh, one, of the, one of the fringe benefits of being in L.A. when we're not dealing with a global pandemic is that uh, I was able to go to a screening with my friend Yuri Lowenthal of The Shape of Water, and uh, Del Toro introduced it himself, and uh, and then showed the creature from the Black Lagoon, and it, you know, in a, at the Very Egyptian nice. Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and it was just one of those things where like you can only do stuff like that in L.A. Um, I, and I would, and again, I almost recommended The Devil's Backbone because I think it's a slightly more obscure film of his. Uh, it came out like in 2001 and, you know, like the world was at war <laughs> and it, it, especially in America, like, like no one wanted to see your, your movie about a war, um, that year. And, uh, but the devil's backbone is, it's a terrifying ghost story also takes place during the Spanish civil war at an orphanage. Um, but I, I really do feel like for my money, I, I just slightly prefer, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, I love them both. But uh, and I think that they're kind of, you know, kind of companion pieces in a way. Uh, but Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. I mean, the way it takes you through the fantasy and also, you know, the, there's the kind of cruel, sadistic uh, military guy who's who, who controls the place where everyone lives and is sort of the stepdad to the main character and some of the horrible stuff that happens to that guy. And also the horrible stuff he does, like, is just straight up horror. It's a straight up it's straight up scary in the real world. Yep. And then this girl in her fantasy life is dealing with this, you know, this like seven foot tall goat man who, you know, is telling her that she's <laughs> this great princess, but that she has to like, you know, kind of find these clues and kind of go through this little gauntlet. That's just horrifying. And I agree the pale man mm -hmm. with the, without the eyes, with the, with the eyes in his hands, you know, when, when I see that, like it just raises the hairs on the back of my neck. And I, I also, I'd like to bring up how I saw this movie initially. I was uh, doing, uh, I was going to do an interview of Guillermo del Toro for creative screenwriting magazine when it still existed. And I didn't yeah. know anything about the movie because it was like six months before it came out. Uh, and I knew who del Toro was. 
uh, I, I very well knew who he was because I'd actually uh, done a TV special for Hellboy for the FX network called the BPRD Declassified. And, um, and so, uh, and I'd only met him very, very briefly once in passing. So I didn't know shit about the movie. And uh, the screening was like at noon on a Wednesday or something at the Arclight Cinema, which is a really nice, the- it's probably one of the best movie theaters in LA. And so I went there and it was packed with Guillermo del Toro fanboys. And the only seat that was available was like right in the middle of the front row of the theater. And that was how I watched the movie. And I, and I had no idea what I was about to watch. And there's like no better way to see a movie, especially a movie that's that unique and that powerful uh, than to walk in just tabula rasa, having no idea what you're about to experience. And uh, I, I, I feel like that experience is pretty amazing and you can't give somebody else that. But after the movie came out, I took my wife and like every friend who would listen to me to, to go see Pan's Labyrinth um, in the theater. And they were all shocked because the trailers made it look like it was a fantasy, the trailers that were out in America. And then you go see it and you're like, yeah, it's not not a fantasy. It's just not all fantasies aren't horrifying. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. It almost, um, to me, it always felt like a, a dark Spanish rendition of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in a way, in terms oh, of how, sure. the, how the physical world is uh, is happening as the fantasy world takes place as well. And, I mean, obviously the similarities in terms of the backdrop, obviously Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, uh, England is being bombed to shit because of, uh, sort of Nazi air raids and that type of stuff. And then you've got the, on the other hand, you've got uh, with Pan's Labyrinth, the Spanish Civil War and all the atrocities that are happening there. And then the fantasy worlds of the two two different movies are, are very, well, and I guess in case of Lions, Witch and Wardrobe, the, uh, the novel, they're very uh, surrealistic as well uh, for those two periods of time. For sure. I, I would be shocked to find that the that uh, Narnia wasn't some influence on Del Toro, but because he is like his work is always such an interesting uh, mashup of different other influences that he's come across, um, mm. and then kind of gives you whatever he's doing in a way that you weren't expecting. You know, The Shape of Water being, I think, you know, a great example of that. Like he's doing a a riff on the Gill Man. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, he's, he's definitely, I think one of the bright lights of cinema today. Uh, I, am not a unique person for pointing that out. Uh, and also uh, having, I've only met him a couple of times, but you know, really nice, really warm, friendly guy. And, uh, and it, it's, it's amazing to me that, that such a unique voice gets purchased in, in, uh, Hollywood. Cause I feel like, you know, nine times out of 10, it's like, Hey, look at that. Look at that, uh, filmmaker who makes something interesting. Uh, which Marvel character do we give them? And I guess he did make Hellboy. <laughs> he did make two Hellboy movies, but, um, you know, Hellboy also is like uniquely suited for uh, his talents as a storyteller. Well, it's funny you should bring that up. Cause my first introduction to his work was Blade 2 mm. and just, um, just sort of the the way that the um, the vampires in that, or this new breed of vampires that are where they're, they're sort of their throats rip apart and it's kind of like a almost looks like a Venus flytrap that yeah. kind of latches onto onto uh, the victim. Uh, and as soon as I saw that, I'm just like, this imagery is out of this world. And I think I was 16, 17 at the time, maybe 18. Um, and to say that, and then I went on this whole sort of uh, – rabbit hole into his work and it's just it's just incredible well, every, have you seen everything he releases 
I haven't seen Kronos, no. Um, the most recent thing of his that I've seen is uh, The Strain TV show. Yeah. Well, Kronos is like his first movie, so I want to say it's from like, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think it's from like 1994 or 1995. Gotcha. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a little older now. But it's a really unique vampire story. Like, I mean, I guess he's done, if you count Blade 2 and The Strain, I guess he's done three very unique uh, vampire stories. But Kronos is Kronos is, is pretty out there. And, uh, and I think you dig it. You should definitely check it out. Uh, everyone online at the moment is all about release the Snyder Cut. As far mm. as Del Toro is concerned, I'm all like, let him do his own cut of The Hobbit because I think him having that robbed from him is the biggest travesty. Well, they didn't shoot it, though, did they? No, but he did write the script for it, and he mm. was originally on deck to be the director, but then they just gave it to... No, he, he like, moved to New Zealand for, like, two years, I think. Like, he moved his whole family to New Zealand for yeah, a while. Yeah, he did, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, shit like that happens in this business all the time. It's 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 always yeah. sad when it does, But I w- and I would love to see his version of The Hobbit, but... Yeah. My something watchable is Shallow Ground, which is a 2004 horror film written and directed by Sheldon Wilson. Wilson. For Christ's sake, Stuart. We need you down at the station, Jack. I'm done with that place. You're going to want to see this for yourself. If someone you want us to call, parents, friend. My deputy checked you over so we know the blood wasn't yours. I find it hard to believe that someone who just made the kind of entrance you did doesn't have anything to say. It also stars Timothy V. Murphy, who, if uh, none of you know that person's name, you'll certainly know who he is when you uh, Wikipedia him or IMDb his name. Stan Kirsch is also in it, Lindsay Stoddart, Patty McCormack, and Rocky Marquette. So this, um, it's very much sort of a, a B-grade sort of slasher, sort of meets Supernatural the premise of the entire movie is there's this kid who rocks up at the the sort of the um, uh, the police station brandishing a knife covered in blood. Like Pretty you soon, do. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? It's just another day in the office. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, the interesting thing about the pull about that is he sort of blocks everyone's entrance from leaving. The pool of blood also acts as its sort of own character in terms of following people that try to leave. And when the blood is sort of, uh, I guess, someone steps into it or touches it, it sort of makes the characters relive their deepest, darkest secrets. And it turns out the people of this town are really horrible people. A lot of them have, have killed, cheated, covered things up. And it, the blood sort of makes that brings out the worst parts of their personalities, and they sort of start to kill each other off. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, you and I were talking off mic before Ben, and it's really it's really hard to get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I was looking for. I mean, like you can find the trailer very easily on YouTube. I was looking for the movie, like to find out if it was on, you know, Netflix or Shutter, Arrow Video, any of any of the, you know, the, the places I go to look for, uh, you know, obscure stuff. And Amazon is sometimes an amazing resource because, like, they're less curated and more just kind of 
a, a massive media dump that you can sift through. But and and it is on there, but it's like fifteen dollars uh, American to buy it. And I was like, yeah, eh, that's a lot. Uh, I, I mean, it's stupid. I was talking to my <laughs> wife about it. There's, there, there's a movie that we were talking about watching, and it was like six bucks to rent. And I was like, before COVID, we wouldn't think twice about hiring a babysitter and spending $40 on movie tickets to go watch a movie in the theater plus snacks and whatever. And now it's like, oh, it's a brand new movie. Oh, but it's $6. Ah. <laughs> um, it's funny how people rationalize things now. And yeah. I mean, the discussions of big streamers releasing entire films, which were originally just going to be at the cinema for like 30 bucks, and the the outrage, Ben, that happens, $30. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's fundamentally stupid. And I mean, I will say that we have uh, rented and even bought a couple of movies during uh, the pandemic that we wanted to see in theaters that were only available and we did want to support them. Um, you know, it's just, you know, a, a movie from, you know, what, uh, 2004, a movie from 2004 should be on, you know, Tubi or Hulu or, you know, it should be somewhere voodoo. I mean, like yeah. uh, my, my movie Alien Raiders, uh, I've, I've been it, it's not up to me where it streams. I wish it were because I would just put it everywhere. Uh, and Warner Brothers, who owns it, like they they finally put it up on Vudu like two years ago. But it wasn't on Netflix or Amazon or whatever, except to buy. And I'm like, you know, this movie's from 2009. No one's going to buy it. No one's going to rent it on there. You know, yeah. you, you're like literally looking at tons of entertainment. You can pay you can watch something you're already paying the subscription fee for and just watch it without paying any more money or you can pay for something that's you know over a decade old you're most of us are gonna just watch find something new that we can watch without paying more money unless we're like really determined to see it for some reason Mm. all right uh ben present your something readable okay so i'm gonna i've got something that i think is kind of obscure um but but it's something that I love. And after I recommended it to you, I dug up my old copies and reread them. Uh, it's a comic book that came out in, uh, I believe, 1987 called Blood A Tale. Now, you can find it as a like, group. It's four volumes. You can find it grouped together as a uh, graphic novel. And I think that I heard a rumbling because I, I had said something to the writer, J.M. DeMattis, on Twitter. And I, I want to say he said that they were going to be re-releasing it or they were talking about re-releasing it as a graphic novel uh i bought i'm 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 elderly so i was able to buy these uh (laughs) when they were new i i I think that i my the first job i ever had was i was a dishwasher at this bagel restaurant in orlando florida and there was a one of two comic book stores in orlando was like a short it was in the same shopping mall it was like right around the corner and i went in there and this thing just jumped out at me now i was never into superhero comics um probably the closest I came to liking superhero comics is I was very into hell blazer, which is Constantine. Mm, um, and, yep. and I started reading that from the very first issue. Uh, but blood of tale. So it's written by JM DeMattis and it's, uh, it's, I, I think to call it illustrated is, is to not sell it highly enough. It is watercolor painted. Every frame of it is a painting. I would be proud to hang on my wall. There, there isn't an image in this that isn't like, just absolutely gorgeous. And it, uh, it's done by a guy named Kent Williams. And it's sort of a story within a story. And the story within a story is about a vampire. Um, and so there's plenty of 
uh, uh, gory vampire action. Lots of red on the page, red watercolor. Uh, but it, it's kind of about life and love and loss and kind of the cyclical, it's it, the, the circle of life, if you will. Um, yeah. and it, it, it's just wall to wall brilliant. It's not a long read. The, the issues are kind of short. Um, but I mean, the art, the art is just eye popping and Jam Dematis is, you know, he, he's been writing comic books for decades and, you know, he does a lot of superhero stuff. He did a, the, the first and only Dr. Strange graphic novel that I, I've ever read. I read because he'd done this, uh, it was called Shem, Shambhala. And uh, Kent Williams didn't do the art on that. I forget who did, but it was also beautiful. But I think that there was this period in the eighties and uh, it's not that, it's not that the artwork in comics isn't great now, but I think a lot of it's done digitally. There was kind of a very artsy analog period that was going on around that time where people were experimenting, Mm -hmm. like, you know, full color illustration was becoming affordable. So like every page of it is glossy. And that was a little unusual back then, I guess. And um, I'm, I'm not a comic mastermind so if i'm wrong about any of this you know feel free to set me straight um, um <laughs> but but <laughs> no i think you're doing pretty well so far but uh anyway I, I i love the story i love the writing and uh but when i think about it i think about the imagery which is just just shockingly gorgeous every every mm. page of it is just shockingly and it's not a vampire like a vampire in modern day new york city it's like it's like in a mythical world. By the way, if uh, nudity is a trigger for you, avoid this like the plague because it is full of nudity. There's so much nudity in it. Oh my God, no one wears clothes in this entire comic book. <laughs> um, well, to be fair, I mean, vampires are often, you know, the the act of vampirism very much has a sexualization to it. It's a very lustful sort of, I yeah. guess, disease or affliction so i feel like you're kind of just pouring salt in the wound if you're reading any vampire or watching any vampire thing and there isn't some kind of sex going on so or nudity so (laughs) yeah i mean this is uh you know this is like happening in like a weird primal like like there's a framing device at the beginning about how there's this king who's dead but won't die and this little girl comes and tells him the story and the comic book is the story that this little girl is telling him. And, uh, and, and it, it kind of takes place in a faraway place and it, and it kind of has elements of like the Moses story from the Bible. Like, you know, this mother finding this pod that has a, that, that turns out to be a baby. And then yeah. you know, he, it, it's, uh, it, it's so gorgeous. Have, have you actually had a chance to read it? I couldn't find it, and everywhere I looked, it's like fifty dollars US, and I'm yeah. like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's a little pricey. Um, I, I found yeah, it. Yeah. I actually saw. I was because I was looking to see if I could find a, uh, a, a like I'd love to get like a, a a paperback version of the whole graphic novel, and mm. um, I there are some that you can find like used that are cheaper, but yeah, because I don't yeah, think yeah. I don't think it's currently being published. Yeah, I think I found it on eBay for thirty dollars used. Yeah, um, but even then, there's no way I would have got it here in time anyway. No, no, I understand. So my something readable is a comic book, I guess, graphic novel and miniseries called Stargazer. It's out through a indie comic book company called Mad Cave Studios, which are based over at Miami, Florida. Um, now it's, uh, written by Anthony Cleveland and the art is by Antonio Fuso. So it's, I guess, a 
paranoia story, which may or may not involve aliens. It's about this this sort of this um this girl and her brother who experienced a traumatic event when they were a lot younger, and the unexplainable uh, unexplainable event has sort of scarred her brother for life. Mm. And her, the brother Kenny, he sort of commits himself to to sort of the belief that. Uh, what they experienced when they were kids was an alien abduction. So, and the story sort of uh, occurs in both sort of time zones, both when they were kids and also 20 years later as sort of the brother and sister have drifted apart and as they've drifted apart from their friends as well. So it's coming of age story. Um, The friends and the brother and sister come back together to sort of figure out what happened to all of them in the story, but I mean the the art by Antonio Fuso is just it's just absolutely exceptional. It's very I think it lends itself to any sort of UFO or sort of um, paranormal type uh, genre of comics, or and it's uh, really something I think that everyone should check out. Yeah, it looked really interesting. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm just curious, though, because I was trying to buy it, and they were saying it's not available until May. Was it released in your part of the world before it gets released here? Like, I, I wasn't able to get it before May of this year. So I say indie comic series because they're, um, like, the company is, that you know, they're not Marvel or DC, but and they're still pretty small. I think they're a team of about ten people at this oh, stage. Wow. But um, uh, they do really, really well with uh with the, in the comic book market for a company that hasn't been around that long. They um, when I first started my my blog, which has eventually led to this uh, podcast, uh, my blog Sutter and Tollpass, they uh, were one of the first. Uh, they sort of were coming up as I started my blog, and they they were just like, "Hey, do you want to check this out?" And yeah, and oh, like their earlier stuff. And then I've sort of remained in close contact with them for a while. So um, yeah, they do they do great stuff. They do. Um, I mean, one of the one of the um, uh, series that they do one of their bestsellers is uh, it's called Battle Cats, which is really mm. just a a fantasy world where of sort of uh, tuna- teenage ninja turtles type characters, except they're, they're all like lions and tigers and they're, um, you know, fighting against evil. And then they've got, you know, obviously this stargazer and then they've, they've got like a martial arts comic book and they've got a couple of uh, young adult comic books that they're, that they're doing as well. There's, there's quite a few things to check out from them. No, it, it looked really good, and I, you know, I read some interviews with the the uh, people who created it, and I saw the artwork online, and it definitely looks like something that's completely up my alley. Like I, I, I don't read enough new comics these days, and I keep promising myself I'm going to spend the time. I have a three year old son, so I don't get to do much of anything, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, s- slowly I'm I'm able to. <laughs> As he gets a, a little bit more uh, independent and going to school and stuff, I'm able to to dive into that kind of stuff. But it looks uh, it looks gorgeous, and it, and all the things that influence the the people who created it are things that I find fascinating. So I'm I'm definitely in for sure. Uh, ben, present your something listenable. 
Okay, so I don't think that this is necessarily an obscure thing to bring up, but uh, no, I definitely not. <laughs> I love I'm it. looking forward to talking about it. Uh, run the jewels for now uh i i sort of feel like i'm at a disadvantage being a middle-aged white guy talking about rap music <laughs> but i did grow hey, ben, up, if it's not you it's someone else <laughs> i did i did grow up with rap music like rap music kind of got you know its teeth into the culture when i was uh you know like 12 13 years old um, and actually, I, uh, long, I, I won't tell you the long story, but I did see the Beastie Boys open for Madonna when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. Um, but, you know, uh, what I appreciate about Run the Jewels is, and, and have since I, I, I first found them at Run the Jewels 2, uh, and maybe part of why I even relate to them is they're a little older. Like a lot of people like hit the ground running as rap artists when they're like 20 years old. And these guys hit the big time when they were in their late 30s. Um, and, uh, you know, Killer Mike, who is like an outspoken advocate and very, uh, very vocal political voice in America. Um, and uh, Jamie, the, uh, who, who's kind of his, you know, the other half. But there's a third person who they kind of say is like the, the fifth Beatle of Run the Jewels. And that's Zach De La Roca from Rage Against the Machine. And this oh, is yes. <laughs> this is where I find they are exactly on my wavelength. Uh, mm. uh, I, f- I came to Rage a little late. My wife uh, actually convinced me to listen to Rage. I-, I was aware of their stuff. You know, I'd listened to a little bit of it, but I was like, oh, it's like where uh, the most angry punk rock and the most angry rap uh, kind of coalesce into kind of this almost primal scream against injustice. And yeah. uh, and it's so good. We actually play it for my son all the, all the time. He's three years old, and he listens to a lot more Rage Against the Machine than most three-year-olds. Yeah, um, well, if his first phrase is fight the power, then yeah. <laughs> it's, it's your fault. We, we do every night. Every I'm not lying. Every night uh, at bath time, we play Take the Power Back, which is uh, – w- yeah. well, actually, yeah, we, we play that in, in one other Run the Jewel song. So, um, but um, – uh, so Zach De La Roca isn't an, an official member of Run the Jewels, but he's done a lot of stuff with them. And, and that was one of the things that got me into Run the Jewels when Run the Jewels 2 is out. And that's probably what, like four, four or five years ago. And uh, I appreciate that their music is never about how, how good their rhymes are or how well they rap. Their music is really about something like it. And it is pissed off. And, uh, and, and it, it's a beautiful kind of pissed off that, you know, like the, the lyrics are, there's, uh, uh, in, in, uh, one of the songs on run the jewels for, uh, Jamie has a line and Jamie's LP is his rap name. Uh, he says, I've got a Vonna gut punch for your Atlas shrug. I was like, when I, when you hear someone drop an anti Ayn Rand pro Kurt Vonnegut, uh, line in, into the middle of the song, like, I, I know that I'm at least listening to someone who I would want to actually meet and talk to and would have a lot to talk about with. Um, uh, so this album came out, uh, this year or I, sorry, last year, 20, 2020. And it came out, 
uh, around the time all of in America, I don't I don't know how much this affected your side of the world, but in America, we were having uh, a massive racial upheaval after George Floyd was, you know, basically kneeled on his neck by a cop until he was dead. Um, and, and it became, and it became kind of a rallying cry for the group Black Lives Matter. And that guy had said when, when, when this cop was kneeling on his neck said, I can't breathe. And, uh, he's not the first and, and as evidenced by there, there is a line in, in one of the songs on the album, uh, where, uh, where Killer Mike kind of goes through this, this, uh, laundry list of things that happened to black men in America. And it ends with, uh, you know, where my voice, uh, goes, uh, from a, a shriek to whisper, I can't breathe. And I remember, uh, hearing that album, hearing that song, the week that, uh, kind of the George Floyd stuff was blowing up and, uh, and, and like I was driving in my car and it just made me, it made me tear up. Like it was like, I, I, like, it it just shine a light on this horrific injustice that we're living in here um in america and again you know i i know that i know that it's probably a horrifically american uh point of view to take but i i don't feel like america has you know a patent on injustice it, it is everywhere and and these guys talk very very uh, eloquently about it there was an episode of song exploder the podcast that broke down one of their songs too um and I, I just love hearing their creative process because their stuff really does have a unique sound that blends a lot of different genres. And I think it's because, you know, they're they're approaching it like they they've been in the business for so long and they're approaching it from a very mature point of view. But the uh, the raw emotion in it, I, like I would say, if you like punk rock, if you like if, if you like hip hop, if you like punk rock, but if you like stuff that like Rage Against the Machine that actually is there to say something this album is that and i i mean i i can't tell you how many times i've listened to it all the way through which i don't really do with a lot of records you know i'll usually listen to them once and then fixate on one or two songs that i like put them in a playlist and you know and, and that's that's you know what i listen to you know the flaming lips which is another band that i love came out with a new album during the pandemic uh and you know i it, it's a great album i listened to it all the way through once there's literally two songs that i continue to listen to from it and, and i love the flaming lips i'm not saying the other ones are bad i'm just saying it's like any album it's like i fixate on a couple of songs and you, and they're, they're not necessarily i mean like they're not playing playing the flaming lips on the radio so i don't know if these are the ones that everyone's expected to like i just kind of landed on those but the run the jewels run the jewels Four, like all of their other albums frankly i think really does hold up to just listening all the way through and yes you will hear uh zach delaroca on this album um for me it's about the the music really sticks out like all the beats it sounds like an actual drum kit is being played it sounds like there's an actual bass being played it sounds like where they mm. have keys it's or anything guitar it actually sounds like that it feels quite old school in terms of uh just the the style of the music um uh the way that the the two of them or the three of them rap and i mean uh i will listen to anything that zach de la Roca is a part of um i yeah i mean even just that song just where like mm. the line the the chorus is look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar yeah i mean well, and, wow <laughs> so so you owe it to yourself go find the podcast song exploder and that's the song that they kind of tear apart and okay. um yeah and uh, what's interesting is um 
is that uh, Pharrell Williams, who's the one who says that, he kind of has the opening of that. That's from him. Uh, You know, and Pharrell Williams is a pretty substantial pop artist here. Uh, I don't know how, how much of him you get over there, but you know, like he had that giant worldwide hit happy. And I guess I don't think of him as like someone who uh, is uh, using, I don't, I should say, I don't seek out Pharrell Williams stuff. So I don't, so I could be the most ignorant person with what I'm about to say, but I don't equate him with being like a social per Like he's not, he's not making points about social justice. That's, not necessarily the stuff that's seeped through the pop culture to me from Pharrell Williams is stuff like happy. And so to find out that that was him, like basically the song started with him saying that, and then they kind of reacted to it. And that was what was interesting about it. I mean, for me, I feel like Pharrell Williams, cause I listened to him before he got huge as a soloist. I kind of came into being aware of him with NERD. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, from going from sort of that stuff to where he's at now, I feel like he's just playing the role. You know what I mean? Could be. He, you know, that's that's kind of the day job. Like he tries to be as artistic as he can within the confines of being a pop artist now. So, well, and you have to be careful about that because if you come across as too uh, controversial, especially in America, especially if it's about you know anything racial, you, you can alienate a lot of your audience. I, I often think about uh, Chris Rock in one of his stand-up specials had a line that was something to the effect of like you know wh- white man takes a gun and shoots up a a, 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 a parking lot, you know whatever uh nothing happens black rapper says gun and there's seven congressional hearing and uh, and i i mean like that tone i it must make it impossibly difficult for somebody who has an enormous pop presence to uh to voice that without being afraid of alienating their audience but also you know you get to a point where uh fuck it no, no one's going to stop you but also i think run the jewels have a high enough um visibility but everyone knows what they are. So like if Pharrell Williams is participating and collaborating with them, you expect him to, to meet them on his terms, but like where his terms, you know, where their Venn diagrams intersect as artists. Mm, Yeah. All right. My something listenable is a CD. (laughs) That felt so weird saying CD. CD. Um, (laughs) Compact disc. (laughs) I have it on audio. Yeah. It's a album by Zombie, uh, American band, uh, and that's spelt Z-O-M-B-I, or for your benefit, Ben, Z-O-M-B-I. I, I can um, <laughs> I can translate to Australian, um, or, or to non-American, as it were. <laughs> anything other. So uh, it's their album, uh, Cosmos. Now, for those unfamiliar with uh, Zombie, they're signed to Relapse Records, uh, a record company which traditionally is known for obscure metal and sort of very extreme metal. So this is a band that sort of really sticks out on that label. They they are a duo as well, so they sort of when you see when they play live, they sort of alternate between. So one of them is uh, handles the bass as well as uh, synth and keyboards, while the other one drums and handles the drums and other synth as well. So there, if you want to know what they're like, sort of stylistically, 
if you listen to sort of any kind of Dario Argento soundtracks or any that's sort exactly, of... That's exactly <laughs> what I thought while I was listening to it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, uh, I can't remember which film... Actually, I think it was on a few films where Goblin uh, performed... Um, well, the big uh, one is soundtrack. Suspiria, obviously. Yes, yes, Suspiria. Um, uh, Zombie actually supported a Goblin tour, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, to give you... So... If you enjoy any sort of zombie films, specifically older sort of zombie films or older sort of horror films, sort of circa 70s or 80s, uh, then you pretty much get their style from this as well. Yeah, I, um, I listened to the whole album and I loved it. It really did feel like I was listening to some kind of lost soundtrack for uh, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond or something. It was, uh, it, it, I, I, I can't believe I never heard of them <laughs> before now. Because this is completely my uh, my jam, and uh, and I yeah. and I and I definitely uh, I I listen to the whole album, and I on I uh, I'm uncool, and I use Apple Music instead of Spotify, but I like you know uh, immediately downloaded all their all their albums. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's, you you <laughs> you set yourself on a trajectory for nothing but good music. So a little bit of trivia for you, and you might find this interesting, Ben. The Italian title of George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead was uh, Zombie, which mm-hmm. is the same title of this band, so or same name ah. as this band. So that's really, um, so that's where a lot of it comes from. It's just sort of that very, uh, I think, horror back when the music was just fun. Yeah, they were really. Uh, I mean, they were they were really experimenting and going out on a on a limb in that period of movies. Uh, and uh, and and actually, uh, the the reason that that was called Zombie, that's why Lucio Fulci's movie, which was also called Zombie, ended up being released in America as Zombie Two, even though there was mm. no zomb- Zombie One. And uh, that's the one that notoriously has the uh, zombie versus actual shark scene, um, one of the most insane moments i've ever seen in in a movie really but um but yeah there is like a really unique style to the music that was in especially italian horror movies at that time Mm -hmm. and i and uh i'll see people try and do a similar thing like in a similar way to the way you see people a lot of uh horror filmmakers lately um kind of copying a john carpenter synthy kind of a score and uh, that doesn't stick out as much as trying to do a goblin kind of score because they were yeah. so nothing was like them. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that uh, that uh, John Carpenter scores aren't awesome because I love them. But uh, but there's just something brilliantly cacophonous about about uh, goblin. And I mean, there were a lot of I'm trying to remember like um, on. Uh, on uh crap it was it was another um dario argento movie that like some prog rock band that was american it was like like emerson lake and palmer or somebody had done the score (laughs) and it was just super weird it it wasn't all three of them i think it was just emerson i don't know i could be wrong and and please send me all the hate mail that that i have coming for getting it wrong (laughs) but um but but I remember watching uh, the movie and 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 it was it was a later it wasn't um, it was like late '80s early '90s I want to say uh, Argento film but like mm-hmm. you know s- some of those scores are just so out there and so interesting that you can just listen to them but uh, you should know if you were to call my cell phone uh, my ringtone is the Suspiria theme. 
and has been for years. Mm. That's nice. Excellent. So, Ben, uh, any of my picks, you're kind of weird. I would say all three of your picks are definitely my kind of weird. Um, I don't read enough comic books. I don't read period enough, Um, but I have been working very hard to change that. And again, as I mentioned, I have a three-year-old kid. I was way too old to have a brand new baby. And, uh, and, and fatigue sets in and, and really cuts into my, it's not my reading. It's not about not having enough time to read. It's about having any attention span at all <laughs> to, yeah. to sit yeah. and read something. And I, uh, you know, so he was born in 2018 and just about now I'm getting to a point where I can sit down and read stuff. So the comic is, is definitely something, but yes, all, I would say all three of your picks are completely up my alley. Those are all my kind of weird. Excellent. And Ben, do you have anything to ask me? Uh, yes, uh, my my choice is how about those for you? Are those your kind of weird? Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to say uh, your listenable uh, album was definitely my kind of weird. Uh, like I said, I'll listen to anything that Zach De La Rocca is, is a part of. Um, your uh, something readable, definitely going to try and check that out when I can. And your something watchable, uh, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth, it's Del Toro, what can I say? So, yes, all of it was my kind of weird. Yeah, it, the, the worst Del Toro movies are better than the best Michael Bay movies. So, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I love Del Toro movies. I, 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 I want to watch them all the time. I wish he would make more. Hopefully, hopefully he'll... Uh, I was hoping after he won the Oscar, they'd be like, okay, now we're going to, it's going to be like the Coen brothers. We're going to have a new Del Toro movie every year. And we, we haven't had one yet, but I'm sure that there's one coming. All right. We're going to go on a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, I'm going to have a bit of a chat to Ben about what he's been up to. Hello again, everyone. Producer Andy here once more. The last few times I've asked you to visit sodaandteddypaths.com, the sister website to this very podcast, where you can read all about the latest on comics, science fiction, and horror. I mean, I I couldn't have been nicer about it. I, I, I patiently explained that at sodaandtelepaths.com you can read all the site's interviews with people in the entertainment industry, along with movie and comic reviews and opinion pieces. But you didn't go. Why not? What do you people what do you people want? Tell me. I, 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 I mean, are you too good for us? Is that it? Oh, what do you want, oh worthy listeners? Huh? Fucking unicorns? Huh? Okay. Fine. There you go. See? Are you happy now? Fine. There. There you go. Fucking unicorn. Great big unicorn with two horns riding a skateboard through Megan Fox's bathroom. You happy? Sodaandtelepaths.com Go there now. Or the unicorn dies. Alright. So, Ben, you were the production designer for Blair Witch Project. Um, For um, I'm sort of almost 36. When Blair Witch Project came out, it was just, it was one of those horror movies that really sort of defined my generation. There were lots of sort of questions around is this real? Because, you know, found footage was not a thing at that point. So. Mm What was that whole sort of, I mean, by by the time that sort of, that everyone being shocked by Blair Witch Project, especially by the end, 
by the time that was happening, you would have long been finished with what you had to do. But for someone that worked on it, what was that that like seeing that everyone just latch on to uh, an underground film? Uh, it was insane. Uh, I had I had never experienced anything like that before or since. Um, I, you know, I, I went to film school with all the guys who made it. We all went to the same film school in Orlando, Florida, the University of Central Florida, and um, and I'd known them for years. And also we'd all gone off and worked on other stuff. And I'd been a, a makeup artist and done special effects makeup on a lot of super low budget movies. A lot of them were shot in Mobile, Alabama, even though I was in Florida because I fell into the right groove with, with some people. And, uh, and I, I decided to quit being a makeup artist and pursue directing. But the Blair Witch thing kind of um, the opportunity to work on that came, uh, you know, came to me around 1996. So to have a thing that, you know, me and my buddies had made on a stru- on a shoestring budget, or I should say my buddies had brought me on to help them make it wasn't, I'm not saying I'm not taking any ownership of it. Um, but, but to have something like that kind of blow up like that was just insane. Uh, and it doesn't really happen. I remember actually talking to a pretty established producer at that time. And he said, <laughs> I had just moved to LA. I, I'd moved to LA. I, I arrived in LA the day Blair, which was picked up at Sundance. So I'd been here for I don't know, six months when it came out. And, um, and I was talking to this producer and he's like, you know, you're never going to be hotter than you are right now. Just, just know that. And that was a horrible thing to learn because <laughs> I didn't know what to do with said heat. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know, I had no connections out here. I didn't really know anybody. You know, I did have an agent at that by that point, but it was, uh, you know, I was, I was trying, I was just trying not to fuck it, fuck up the opportunity. But yeah, it was mm-hmm. insane. It was surreal. It was weird to put on, you know, the Tonight Show or the Daily Show and see, you know, my college buddies being interviewed. That was, and, and also the actors, you know, like them on all these, you know, the MTV Movie Awards or whatever. All these places, everyone was showing up, and then also the backlash, like to have, uh, you know, uh, to have Chris Rock do a cheap joke at, at the expense of a movie that I had worked on and, and, and loved, because that's what happens whenever you do anything that ends up being somewhat popular, there's going to be a backlash. You just, you know, wait, that, that train's never late. Um, but you know, it was mostly just an amazing ride invigorating it. It got me my first directing. It got me my first two or three directing jobs, uh, just my association with it. And I wasn't even the director on the movie. So, you know, that's, that's gotta be good for something. Why did you decide to move on from makeup? Uh, was it because you came to the realization that not everyone can be Tom Savini? <laughs> um, well, uh, uh, I was in, I had always wanted to direct um, and I went to film school to direct, but also starting when I was in like middle school, uh, a friend of my family had gotten, had given me as a birthday present, uh, the Dick Smith do it yourself monster makeup handbook when I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I started like experimenting with all this stuff and I got pretty good. And then, uh, when I was like 17 and I was in high school, I was doing, I did some monster makeup or I wouldn't say monster makeup, but we did a, we did a high school play where, um, we did a play called the ballad of the sad cafe. And there was a character played by my friend Jay Bogdanovich, who was a hunchback dwarf. And the director who was our drama teacher wanted to make him look more deformed and asked if I could help. And I had never done it before. And so I cast his face and made a prosthetic and I made a million mistakes along the way, but I like had to teach myself at, you know, age 16, 17 to do it. And then I kind of got into the craft of it, um, you know, cause I enjoyed sculpting and the mold making was kind of fun. 
and I, uh, there was a local theater where I, uh, I showed up when they were doing a, a Frankenstein play. And I just showed up with a Frankenstein prosthetic I'd made at home and showed it to the woman who was doing makeup on that play. And, you know, they already had figured out what they were doing. She wasn't about to like bring me on, but she was kind of charmed. So I was 17. Her name's, uh, her name is now Amanda Llewellyn now that she's married. Um, and she kind of took me under her wing and trained me to be her assistant. And so I assisted her on a bunch of stuff and then she started getting opportunities in movies. So it's like, it was something that I was very interested in, but I'd wanted to direct the whole time. And when I started working on those movies in Mobile and I mean, I worked on some in Atlanta, some in Miami, um, I was still in film school at that time and I was making my own, my own films. I was using the money that I was making as a makeup artist, in fact, to finance my thesis film in college. And, uh, so, you know, I was out of college a few years and I just realized that makeup was as, as far as I could see it. And I don't know that I really agree with this point of view today, but makeup was almost as, as competitive as directing. It's not, but that's how it felt. And, um, and did I want to slave away at that, um, you know, for the rest of my life when it wasn't really the thing that I was most excited about doing? You know, I was at that point, I was in my 20s and it was a little easier to say, ah, you know, and it's not like I never do anything makeup related anymore. It's but it's usually on something that I'm also directing. Often it's something I'm directing in theater. Um, and uh, and and so I, I kind of made that decision to kind of just cut it off um, be, because I didn't. The other side of it too, by the way, was I liked doing all the monster stuff and I'd worked on some monster movies, but then I started meeting, you know, the people who do that stuff full time, you know, uh, not, not Tom Savini sized people. I didn't work with anyone that big, but I worked with this guy who unfortunately passed away a few years ago named TC Williams. And I was just on his crew on a movie called mutant species that was directed by David Pryor. And, um, and I remember him telling me that every year he went and got blood work done to see which chemicals he was taking were most toxic to him so he could stay away from them for another year. And I realized at that time that like being a special effects makeup artist, if I was going to really do it, I was going to be exposing myself nonstop to really caustic, terrible chemicals. And I think it, I think the industry has gotten a lot better about it since then, but I could be wrong. You know, stuff like mm. poly, polyfoam puts off like some kind of cyanide r- related gas. And, uh, you know, and when people, (laughs) when people would mix it, they would usually do it outside with a fan blowing it away. But I'm like, yeah, you're still breathing it. And, you know, I would get a very special headache whenever I used it. And I just started a real, you know, I was cooking foam latex in my, in every oven of every apartment I lived in. So my house always smelled like burning rubber. Like it literally smelled like, you know, uh, somebody had just peeled out in my living room in their, in their Honda Accord. And, uh, and so (laughs) I, I think that, I, I was slowly disincentivized to do that. And I really did want to direct, um, you know, my heroes were mostly the horror directors of, you know, the sixties and seventies, you know, the, the usual suspects, George Romero, David Cronenberg, John Carpenter, like, uh, Stuart Gordon, who I, I ultimately actually got to work with Stuart a bunch. Um, and, uh, you know, those kinds of people were more influential to me. And I, and I decided to kind of move in that direction. And when I moved to LA, that made it easy to kind of make a very clean break from that. But two years before I moved to LA, I, I stopped doing the makeup. Also like the stuff that I was getting were just un, some, some of them were a lot of fun, but a lot of them were kind of unpleasant to work on. <laughs> but I think that probably speaks more about low budget movies that were being made in the, in the Southeast United States in the, in, you know, the, the mid to late nineties. So you directed uh, one of my personal favorite horror films, Alien Raiders, uh, which oh, wow, I discovered. 
uh, you're welcome, which I discovered, uh, I think about 15 years ago now, I think about, it was quite some time ago, um, which is basically aliens in a, in a, uh, shop, in a grocery store, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, which I just found incredible. The very much okay. the claustrophobic aspect of it, the, the ending, still waiting for a sequel, by the way. Um, he kind of, left we, we came up with then. one, uh, the, the writer and I came up with one and, uh, you know, the, the, the production company, the, the partners in the production company basically dissolved the production company. So I doubt it will ever happen. Oh, well, it's still a good standalone film nevertheless. Well, so, um, how do, how does, um, what was the, the sort of the, the process there in, in terms of writing, where did the idea come from and why, why a grocery store? Okay, so uh, I mean, I can tell you a lot of stuff about Alien Raiders, but the genesis of it was uh, a lot of it falls on Dan Myrick, who was the co-director of Blair Witch, and um, and David Simpkins, who wrote the original script. Um, so you know, the idea—I I feel like the idea of what makes a grocery store a compelling place to set something like that is just that we're all used to being in them. Like you know, like it's the most common place you could go. And I, I don't mean to bring this up as a, uh, this is a, a horrible thing to bring up to compare it to at all. But I, I keep seeing it on the news as we're recording this. There was uh, a mass shooting in, in uh, Boulder, Colorado this week at a grocery store. And everyone's talking about when they talk about it, they talk about how, um, you know, this is just a place that we all go to, you know, rich, rich poor, young, old, uh, you know, college, college students, you know, high priced lawyers, everyone eventually is going to be in that grocery store. You know, we all go there. And, and so it's like a terrifying place for something like that in the real world or in my movie, thankfully in the made up world to have, you know, something like that happen. We can all just relate. We all know what it feels like to be in a grocery store. And, uh, and so to me, that's what, what attracted me to that material when Dan asked me if I'd be interested. And when I was brought on, there were actually two different scripts and kind of two different approaches that David Simpkins had, had kind of created. And the one that I uh, gravitated instantly to was the, the one that felt more like John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, where there was kind of an alien test. <laughs> and it, it kind of took the blood test from The Thing and stretched it out a bit uh, and, you know, made it a, a bigger part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, when you say alien, I really appreciate you m- even having any comparison at all to, to alien alien was a movie that I looked at very closely. The thing was a movie I looked at very closely. And one of the things that I tried to take from both of those was the way they cast those movies. You know, um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not anti beautiful people and I'm not saying that my cast were not beautiful people, but I wanted people who felt like real people. I didn't want people who felt like, you know, uh, they were all made up and perfect hair and, and, and like these people were all kind of road hard and put away wet the whole, the whole cast. And, um, and I, and I appreciated uh, in David's script, even though like when, when I was brought on, David had turned in his last script and then Julia Myrick uh, wrote, you know, she and I kind of tackled it and had to kind of pare it down and make it work on our extraordinarily short schedule because the movie was shot in 15 days. Um, but uh, what I liked about it too was that David uh, was giving the audience credit for having seen Alien Invasion and Body Snatcher kind of movies. So there wasn't a lot of exposition. <laughs> we, you're not, you're not, you're, you're, you're with the people who work at the grocery store. You're not with the people who are invading the grocery store. 
And, uh, and so, uh, you're kind of dropped into this thing and have to, and are given like breadcrumbs and clues along the way to figure out what it is. But even when the main character played by Carlos Bernard is kind of explaining to them what's going on, he's explaining as little as he can get away with explaining very intentionally, uh, so that they'll comply. He's just trying to get them to comply. And, uh, Mm, and so, you know, hopefully you don't realize the breadth of it, you know, probably until maybe halfway uh, through the movie. Yeah. The other thing I liked about it, it kind of felt I was a big fan uh, as a kid of that Stephen King novella, The Mist. And mm. This was obviously before The Mist came out. Um, no, no, no. This, this, came the- out, this came out after The Mist. In fact, I was hired. Oh. I was hired to make Alien. Radio. We came out in two thousand nine. Oh right. Okay. And The Mist had, had come out in theaters in two thousand seven. So oh, um, for some so, reason, I thought it came out the other way around. But no, that's no. Right. And, in fact, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> this is one of those. Mo- I mean, like this this kind of shit happens all the time, where it's like I was I was brought on, I was given the script, I got the job. That weekend, my wife and I went and saw a movie, and on the movie was a trailer for The Mist. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm fucked. Like, this exact movie already exists. It's not the exact movie, obviously, but, like, horror movie monsters in a, in a grocery store is coming out, and they're going to say we were a copy of it, and we weren't. But mm-hmm. um, I, And I intentionally did not see The Mist until after – I think I saw it after we shot the movie, but maybe we might have still been in post. But it's like I didn't want to be informed or reacting to, in the opposite way, the mist. I didn't want to be thinking about the mist when I was making it. So you've got um, uh, a movie out through Shudder, uh, which is – where is it? It's video. It's a podcast. It's not a movie. It's, it's, oh, a, it's horror, a movie. It's oh. a horror fiction. It's all audio. It's basically an audio drama. Ah, uh, okay. Right. Um, how did that come about? Uh, Video Palace uh, came about actually also through one of my Blair Witch friends uh, and college friends, Mike Manello, who was the co-producer on Blair Witch and who I think never gets enough credit for what he did because he knew how to, he was the one out of that group who knew how to angle that movie at Sundance. And he's also the one out of the whole group who said, hey, this internet thing, maybe we should put something up on that. (laughs) So that's Mike. And Mike uh, runs a visionary company now in New York uh, called Campfire NYC. And they do, it's to call them ad campaigns minimizes what they do, but they do kind of like these in these engaging experiences to get people to go to usually giant premium cable things like the man in the high castle or Westworld or game of Thrones. Um, and they do these just amazing campaigns. They did one for the purge TV series at comic-con a few years ago. Anyway, so Mike and Nick Braccia, who worked with him at the time at Campfire, they still work together on other stuff. Uh, they had kind of the basic idea, and they knew one of the executives at Shutter, a guy named uh, – uh, I probably shouldn't say who it is, actually. So they knew one of the main executives at Shutter. <laughs> well, he's not, he's not there anymore. It's, it's, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a big deal. But, um, I'll say I don't it. think it I'll, changes I'll the story. <laughs> It, it doesn't change it, but it won't matter. It's not like I'm gonna, I have nothing bad to say about him. Uh, a guy named Owen Shiflett, and they had kind of pitched in the idea, and, and Shutter was kind of interested in the idea of exploring original podcasts. And, uh, and so they had the basic idea, and they'd written up like a brief outline of what they wanted to do, but they are too busy being visionary marketing geniuses. And Mike and I, meanwhile, for years, had been talking about wanting to do a horror fiction podcast together. And, um, I believed that some of the techniques we had used on Blair Witch, literally on Blair Witch, and also on Curse of the Blair Witch, which was the sci-fi 
uh, channel documentary that, that marketed Blair Witch. And then some of the original stuff that I had directed also, uh, uh, there was one called shadow of the Blair Witch that was for the sequel. And then there was one called the Burkittsville seven that was in a, uh, 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 that accompanied the Blair Witch project when it premiered on the Showtime network. Um, I, I kind of created this technique. I'm saying I created it. I don't know that I created it, but I don't know anyone else who's ever done it, but anyone who's listening to this can steal this idea and run with it. Like I, I don't have a patent on it. It's very easy, uh, of doing interviews, um, that are, you know, for, for a narrative. So you're not really interviewing real people, uh, where you write like a two or three page creative brief, you give it to the actor, they memorize the basic gist of it. And then you interview them for real. And, uh, so you ask them questions and they do all the stuff that I'm doing now, the fumfers and ums and us and stuff that people do as just kind of verbal garbage when we're talking. And then when you edit the interview, the, just the act of editing, it makes it sound very legitimate. Uh, and it weirdly, I think it works with really great actors who are awesome at, at improv. It also works really good with non-actors. I think it, the people it works worst with are mediocre actors because they just want to give you the information that you want. Like they're just struggling to do it, but like actors who are really comfortable in their skin. So some of the actors that we had in video palace, uh, like, uh, Kelly Holden Bashar and Larry Cedar, these people are just so good at this. Uh, Joel McCrary, who was also in alien Raiders is in it. Um, they're so good at improv that they can just kind of run their yaps on this thing. What the, the downside is like, you know, page wise, an interview is going to take up three pages, you know, IE three minutes of your final project to get those three minutes, you're going to interview them for 20 or 30 minutes. So it, it, it adds some, times on edit, some time on editorial, but I was the one who was doing all the editing. So, you know, whatever. Um, so Mike and I kind of had this theory about like, could we make a podcast that sounded like a first person investigation, like a, like, sh- uh, like serial, um, but make it paranormal. And we'd been kicking around ideas. So when Mike pitched this idea to Shutter, they, they, and they really liked it. He came to me and said, like, hey, would you like to do that? And asked me if I wanted to write and direct it. And I said, can I co-write and direct it? Because my friend Bob DeRosa, uh, who, I, who I did 20 Seconds to Live With, he's got a lot of episodic TV experience. And, uh, and I felt like I needed, I mean, and also Bob's a phenomenal writer. I'm not just sucking out his episodic TV knowledge. He's, he's a great writer. Um, and I feel like Bob and I balance each other really well. And, um, and so uh, they said, Sure. I mean, they didn't increase the budget for that. They just, you know, we just split the writing fee down the middle. But um, uh, so they brought us on and uh, literally less than a month after my son was born, Bob and I started writing uh, Video Palace. And I have to say of pretty much any project I've ever done, Video Palace came out just about exactly the way I'd imagined it. If you listen to Video Palace and you like it, that's exactly what I wanted. If you hate it, you hate the exact thing I wanted to do. (laughs) before we go you mentioned uh 20 seconds to live which is a it's a web series i believe dark comedy Mm -hmm. so um tell people about 20 seconds to live how they can view it and what it's about okay so 20 seconds to live uh please watch it if you're listening to the sound of my voice i would love to hear what you think um my friend bob derosa and i uh came up with the idea after doing lots of late night uh, goofy, often gory or gross out theater at a, at a theater company in LA called sacred fools. They, they had a show called uh, crime scene. And then later, uh, assuming we ever do theater again, uh, in general, they, they have a show called, um, serial killers that we were involved in. And they were all like 10 minute short plays 
that you would do for a drunken crowd at like 11 o'clock on a Saturday. And Bob and I had been saying over and over again, like, man, it would be good if we took this effort and just put it into making something that was on film so we could like advance our careers in some way with this because you're not advancing your career. You're just, you know, having fun doing the late night theater thing. I don't know that we advanced our careers with 20 Seconds to Live, but uh, we had a blast doing it. And so the whole conceit of it is it's an anthology show. So every every episode is all new characters, all new situations, and frankly, all new genres. Some are more sci-fi, some are more grounded in reality, some, you know, weird demon characters or people with paranormal abilities. Like they're all very, they're all very different. All, every episode is super short. I think our longest episode is about three minutes. Our shortest episode is about a minute and a half. And we introduce a new bunch of characters, and then at a certain point, the title card "20 Seconds to Live" comes up on the screen, and then it just drops down to the twenty, and then nineteen, and then eighteen. And at, when we get to zero, one of these characters you met is going to die somehow. And mm-hmm. uh, we didn't conceive it this way, but we realized after we'd made a couple episodes that it is kind of a game, and we started leaning into that in the writing and trying to come up with either people who you wanted all of them to die, or you didn't want any of them to die. You know, so we did an episode called Christmas Morning, where it's like a mother, a father and two kids on Christmas. And you're like, I don't want any of these people to die or, you know, or just like a group of people where you're like, you know, uh, two, two kind of douchey guys, one played by Derek Mears, uh, of all people, uh, who is a, a fabulous and wonderful guy, um, uh, two, two dorky guys uh, summoning a demon in their living room. You know, what could go wrong? Um, so, you know, or, or one about like just a guy, uh, bringing home a fish to give as a gift, like a, a, a pet fish to give as a gift to his wife and the, and the bag a- falls off the counter and he has to save the fish. So like either he's going to die or the fish is going to die and it's all super short. So to me, uh, you know, that they're fun, uh, often gory, um, uh, or, or gross, not all of them. Uh, the first episode anniversary, uh, is probably the grossest one we did. Uh, it's also probably one of my favorites really came out well. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's hopefully, uh, some are more horror, some are more comedy, but they're all kind of fall in the horror comedy world. And we've had a, a really good run, uh, playing them at web fests around the world. And, uh, you know, we've gotten a, a really good response. You know, it's, it's kind of our, uh, fun side project when we can afford to do it kind of thing. Well, after Alien Raiders, I sincerely wish all the success for you. Oh, thank you. Where can people find you online, Ben? Uh, the easiest place is my website, which is benrockonline.com. Um, I won't get into the long story about why benrock.com is not available, but it was a boat company. I'll leave it at that. Um, you can. I'm easy to find on Twitter. I'm at Neptune Salad. Um, yeah, I'm on all the, all the social media networks, uh, uh, except for, I'm not really on TikTok. I mean, I'm on TikTok, but I don't really use it because I think I'm too old. I think that there's like an age limit. You, you age out. Like, <laughs> I keep going on TikTok and being like, I was like this with Snapchat too. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get I, it. It's not for me. Yeah. It's one of those things where you get better for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also feel like, you know, just like how many hours of your life are you, I mean, when I talk to people who are like, yeah, I, I deleted Facebook. I'm like, it's like you, it's like you have a superpower. It's like you have four more hours in your day than I do. Um, cause I'm too busy trying to fix guns and racism on Facebook all day. You know, I'll, I'll do it one day. Um, you know, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm on, you know, uh, Instagram, t- Twitter, LinkedIn, all, all, all the stuff that, you know, Gen Xers and older are probably all on. 
And that's it for another episode today. If you liked today's episode, go check out My Kind of Weird on any of the usual podcast networks. Um, uh, I'd just like to thank Ben Rock for appearing on today's episode. So thanks, Ben. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love your show. And since we've been talking horror, I'm going to leave with one special message for everyone until we come back. Stay safe, everyone. Nordstrom has a special holiday treat for you. For a limited time on Nordstrom.com, get free two-day shipping in selected areas on thousands of items. Just enter your zip code on their site to see all the great items you can shop. Exclusions apply.